Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 374 is recorded live July 5th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we haven't burned down from fireworks. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm enjoying the mostly dry weather. Mostly dry. Yeah, we, we did have a little bit of sprinkles. Uh, I, I was actually, right before this, uh, we did the podcast, I was at our robotics build site, and the humidity was so bad that the concrete floors... And the steel walls in the building were sweating. Well, the humidity's been so high in my basement that the air conditioning ducts, I walked down there and I'm looking at, where in the hell is the water coming from? Because it wasn't flooding this week. Uh-huh. And all the air ducts were just dripping wet. Yeah, because so I had to open all the duct work down there to get the cold air circulating around so I wouldn't have that delta. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a rainforest in my, in my freaking basement. <laughs> I've I've got my uh, dehumidifier. I've been running that thing like crazy, dumping it twice a day. I've, I've finally, in the last two or three days, gotten it to where it only fills up about half a, a tank, half the little reservoir a day. But normally, it you know, when it's really humid, I can get at least one every six to eight hours. Yep, I know what you mean. But I've been running the fans downstairs. i got extra floor fans mm-hmm. trying to keep my floor dry. So yeah. I don't have any more of those chemicals leaching up from those injection points. Yeah, I've I've got uh, just outside my office down here in the bunker where I'm recording, I've got one fan by the door blowing one way, and then way at the other side of the basement, I have a fan suspended from the ceiling kind of blowing the other way, trying to get like a vortex. And I run that all year round to just, if I don't do that because there's a significant temperature change because the basement's a walkout, the one end of the basement will always sweat or weep or do something. So you just got to keep that air moving. You, I got the ceiling fans, you know, for the summer and winter. Uh-huh. You reverse the flow. Yep. Do you, do you have those correctly? You know, I I do. I know they're correct at least half of the year. I, I Usually if I think of it, I'll turn them because uh, you want them blowing down in the winter and then blowing up in the summer. Or is it yeah, I believe that is because you want the, the hot air that rises, you want that down during the winter. So it right. must be in reverse for the summer. Yeah, I think that's what it is, but uh, sometimes it feels good being underneath them. Like in the bedroom, I think we got them all year long, just blowing down, just because it's sometimes nice to have that air current. But I think you're right. I think you're supposed to have it the other way, because then it will draw the the uh, air up. But yeah, maybe yeah, maybe that's something we can look up later. Well, like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We had uh, Derek and Eric were in. Derek's taking off for a... Uh, dive vacation so we'll have to hear how that trip goes when he gets back so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news the first article up is we have sunto has a recall of pressure tra- uh, tank pressure transmitters and tank pod uh, potential safety risk has been found by sunto on two of its products all consumers who have a sunto wireless tank pressure transmitter or tank pod are asked to bring the products to an authorized sunto dive dealer or a sunto authorized service center for inspection and upgrade it's a free service for its customers. The exterior cases of the wireless tank pressure transmitter failed during a regular dry land pressure testing. Although it's extremely rare, it's a potential risk of injuries if it bursts. The process is free for consumers. All transmitters and tank uh, PODs must not be used before the gadgets have been made. I'm saying PODs. I think they mean pods. Uh, Suntum uh, will provide a free battery replacement one-year warranty from the day of inspection for all upgraded products, which is actually kind of nice to encourage you to bring them in. Um, so you go to their website to get all the details. There's, uh, quite a few different serial numbers. So that's just a good thing to check. And then we have a boy, 10 dies in a scuba diving accident in, uh, was it Toll Toll County uh, in Utah? 10 year old boy died Wednesday in a scuba diving accident in Blue Lake in, uh, Toll County. According to Lieutenant Ron Johnson from the County Sheriff's Office, the boy was with his father who's a certified scuba diver, but the boy wasn't certified and didn't, didn't have diving equipment. 
He was borrowing the auxiliary line from his father's scuba equipment, Lieutenant Johnson said. He said the pair were with a group of people scuba diving in a lake about 16 miles south of Wendover. The two were 25 feet below the water surface when Lieutenant Johnson said the boy suddenly ascended for an unknown reason. The boy immediately left his father's side or his arms and ascended quickly to the surface. Once the boy reached the surface, he said it appeared the boy was suffering a medical issue and went unconscious and stopped breathing. Family and friends met paramedics on Highway 93, and he said paramedics attempted to revive the boy, but he passed away. Word immediately sped to the scuba diving community. We have a Facebook page, Utah Scuba Divers. Instructor Lee Burnham said, as I was looking on Facebook, it just popped up saying that there's been an accident out in Blue Lake. Burnham, who said he'd been teaching scuba lessons for 40 years, said the instructors will often take scuba students to Blue Lake. He explained that the most dangerous part of scuba diving is coming to the surface. He said if not done properly, ascent can be deadly. If you short-circuit that and hold your breath and go to the surface and the air in your lungs will expand, we call that a lung overexpansion, and it could be very dangerous. He explained that all divers carrying tanks that can be shared by two people if needed. Everybody who goes diving has to have an extra regulator so they can share air of the tank with their buddy if something happens. I went through that, and I understand what they were probably doing, which is father and son buddy diving on a tank. Uh-huh. And person who's going to feel the worst, obviously, is going to be the father. Oh, my gosh, yes. Because the kid got loose. I mean, I can't imagine that. I don't understand what made the the kid get rid of the regulator, but obviously, maybe he took some water and, and panicked. Yeah, he could have uh, just got a little bit of, you know, like, the, sucked a little bit of water in around the mouthpiece or something, or saw something that scared him, and maybe he had yeah. a, a fear or something but that was I, down there. It, it's one of those... You know, if you if you had your hand on your kid, you'll never. I I don't know, right. but if he did or didn't, he is he's he's screwed for life. Oh, that's just a, yeah, that is so sad. You know, I I understand, and I've done that with younger pe- my kids in a pool. Right. I would, you know, thirty five feet is a good bit down there for clearing his ears, uh-huh. that kind of stuff. I I don't know. Even yeah. though I know there are some kids who have been taught and trained, but he obviously, he had not gone through a class, and I'm sure his dad told him what to do correctly. It's just at 10 years old, and even all the scenarios we've been going through, experienced divers make dumb mistakes, panic, and that's all she wrote. Yeah. Bad. And then uh, as a follow-up article to something we have covered in the past, it seems like it was a news almost every week for a year, was a Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And that has been about eight years ago where that happened, and they're saying that the, the ocean is still struggling to recover. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill led to a discharge of 4.9 million barrels of oil, and uh, they said it still hasn't recovered. The spill area hosts 8,332 species, all of which are threatened by the hydrocarbon leak. The 2014 study of the effects of the oil spill in the bluefin tuna found the toxins from oil spill can cause irregular heartbeats leading to cardiac arrest. A further study also found that toxins could severely damage internal organs of predators and even humans in the area, directly contradicting British Petroleum, the oil company responsible for the spill. make matters even worse, the oil dispersant core exit previously only used as a surface application, was released underwater in unprecedented amounts. The goal was to make the oil more easily biodegradable, but the plan backfires the oil and dispersant mixed prematurely in the food chain through zooplankton, from which it proceeded to spread across the entire ecosystem. Chemicals from the spill were found in migratory birds as far away as Minnesota, with a uh, devastating effect on marine wildlife. A 2016 study reported 88%. The 360 baby or stillborn dolphins within the spill area had abnormally had abnormal or underdeveloped lungs compared to 15% in other areas. Uh, and then this is a quote from the study. As the site's closest to spill, biodiversity was flattened. This according to the study's lead author and University of South Mississippi macrobiologist, Leah Hadman told The Guardian, there are fewer types of microbes. This is a cold, dark environment. Anything you put down there will be longer lasting than oil on the beach in Florida. It's premature to imagine the effects of the spill are over and remedied. Researchers took sediments from samples from shipwrecks scattered up to 150 kilometers or 93 miles from the spill site to study how and if microbiodiversity has recovered. Shipwrecks are a biodiverse hotspot, so a good place to see how life recovered. 
More than 2,000 historic shipwrecks spanning 500 years of history rest in the Gulf of Mexico seafloor. Shipwrecks serve as artificial reefs and hotspots for biodiversity, something rare in deep ocean environments. The, the spill discharged crude oil into the deep Gulf. Because of physical, biological, chemical interactions, DWH oil was deposited in the seafloor where historic shipwrecks are present to study, examine sediments and micro, my, uh, microbiomes and seven historic shipwrecks. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Results weren't encouraging. Microbes are still struggling to recover, and since they are affected, the entire food chain is built upon them is also affected. Good chance we have yet to see all the far-reaching consequences of the event. We rely heavily in the ocean. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just curious. Why do they keep saying historic shipwrecks? Are there really historic shipwrecks, per se? Well, isn't a shipwreck by definition historic? I mean, it's a it's something of history. I don't know. I mean, they're using it to to uh, incite a response, get some excitement. Yeah, the same as with the photos they used of the ducks, which are not the way it is now. The the plume, right. which is not the way it is now. But if you look at the pictures, that's what's grabbing you, like you said. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, let's see, which magazine is this? This is uh, ZMC Science. It's just a science magazine for that aspect. That's their their shtick. Yeah, they uh, they tend to be the environmental, very heavily on renewable energy. So yeah, there's their that's their angle on this. So what they're done, they've done is they've cited uh, resources that have uh, that fit their particular model. Yeah. So something something that will be interesting. Need to keep some. Uh, eyes on this and hopefully there'll be some additional studies that will come out and then we had a, a shipwreck off of oregon uh, i think it was the beeswax shipwreck and they have found a passenger list for the galleon off the oregon coast another piece of the puzzle from the beeswax wrecks is now in place this time adding to the, uh, names to those who perished and became stranded when the Manila galleon went down along oregon's coast a new finding comes from the research of ronald spores Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at Vanderbilt University, now resident at DePoe Bay. Spores joined a group of volunteers digging in local lore. The galleon sunk off and was that Manzantina in 1693. Through the centuries, intriguing bits of its cargo, including beeswax, have washed up in the north coast beaches. Historians believe the galleon is the Santo Crisco de Burgos from Manila in the Philippines, then a Spanish colony. Last month, of spores is pouring yet again. Again, over 2,000 pages of 17th century records from the archives in Seville, Spain, he realized he had overlooked one very important document. Spores accessed the uh, repository online. Somehow he'd missed the manifest, which is buried away towards the back of it. He said, well, wait a minute. There's a full personnel manifest. All the crew and sailors and soldiers, the deckhands of passengers, it comes to 231 names. Now, how would they know... Would that be on the manifest? So if they, if the vessel was in the Philippines, would those documents have gone back to Spain? Does it I port- don't know. I just know that they have a tremendous amount of information on ships, cargoes, yep. and always seem to have. Yeah. The- so unless they've got it as they're leaving and how they'd get what they picked up if the ship sank, I don't know. Unless everybody had a, not everybody. But if you were in an armada or something, mm-hmm. everybody had copies of everybody else's cargo. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's what I just find interesting is that if it was a, a ship leaving Spain, I would understand that having the manifest. But it sounds like this wasn't even that wasn't even on the route. That this was uh, coming from uh, the Philippines, Manila, which is a Spanish colony, and then down to Mexico and back. That's what this traveling this path was. So it makes me think that they must have had offices there that were recording it as if they, I mean, as if that was Spain. And then, you know, they, every so often they send the documents back, but that's, that's quite amazing. Not something I would expected, but like you said, Spain does have some excellent records on. It's not the first time I've heard of uh, manifests from ships being discovered there. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, part of it because it had some decent pickers of mm-hmm. the type of ships of that era. And we saw that wooden mock-up or the model that was made, which made a lot more sense when you're starting to look at the boat. Yeah. And this here complements that model. Because yeah, they do show the, uh, if you go a little bit farther down the article, they actually show the trade paths of which they're doing. It's like from the Philippines up past Japan, uh, up to Oregon. And, oh, they said it was blown off coast, of uh, course. Because what they're probably doing is following the uh, 
the trade winds. Oh, yeah. As soon as you learn that, that's a better way to travel. Well, interesting article. I like that. Is 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 neat how that was a follow-up to one we had recently covered. Yeah. And then we had an article on corrosion, cylinder corrosion and prevention techniques. This one from the scubanews.com. Was there anything in particular you wanted to cover on this one, or you just thought this was a... The only item about that, it, it really surprises me how often people in salt water do not take the boot off their freaking tank. And that's where you see a lot of corrosion aspects is on the boot that never gets rinsed and have that huge pitting and stuff. Well, I mean, as humans, we are naturally lazy. I mean, I'd have to say I could, other than I don't have to worry about salt water, but I never take the boot off my tanks, but I'm diving in fresh water. Do you have boots on all your tanks? Because I don't. Uh, I've only got it on, I've only got them on the tanks that came with a boot. I haven't bought boots for my. <laughs> it's it's some some. I, ta- I have one tank that has it and one tank that doesn't. I just. I've got some heavy rubber ones on the ones I've always used in a pool because right. I do not want to crack their tile or their the surfaces around the pool. But a couple of my tanks, I just don't have boots on them. Yeah, so I. I still thought it was interesting when they started talking about whips, items like that. It's still a good item to take a look at, uh, especially if you're in the business for. Mm-hmm. Filling tanks, you'd want to have some idea about what causes the corrosion so you'd know what to look for. Because they're here, they're talking about the VIP, and it's always interesting, even if you're you're not going to do it yourself, mm-hmm. take a look inside of a tank. You know, Generally, most of the dive shops would be more than happy to let you eyeball a, a used tank that's yeah. got you know pitting to show you what it really can look like inside of your tank. Yeah, yeah. So that's what that's what they're doing. They're looking for when you have your annual viz are looking for signs of corrosion or anything they should be concerned about because they're going to be filling that tank putting some pretty decent pressure in there and they're going to be the well, ones you also have to be careful when you're buying tanks that have been yeah. recently repainted because you're oh, always yeah. curious did they how did they uh temper that yeah you know, I, did they heat treat it or something which will change the ductility uh, you know the the strength of the material or could change the strength of the tank material. Yeah, that that's a big warning sign you know if you're a new diver and you're out buying gear and you see uh i'm not talking a, a brand new tank that is freshly painted but a used tank that has been painted i mean that's battle it, scars you just leave a tank let it get its uh natural dings and wear yeah i don't have any real pretty tanks unless they're new yeah because you don't want to you know put a a coating on there and then heat cure it because now you can just change that. Well, yeah, integrity you start, of the tank. you know, some of those had epoxy bases, took some heat for them. And my 72s, I think I got two 72s still left over. And uh, like you said, battle scars gives, gives them character. Yeah, you can you can tell which tanks have seen there, seen some handling. Speaking of handling, we've got uh, Titanic artifacts cut in an international tug of war. So, uh, for those who aren't aware, <laughs> I think just about everybody listens to this podcast is, the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic. Uh, it was in April 1912 with more than 1,500 people. Uh, in 1987, a private American company has salvaged remains of Titanic from the ocean floor, amassing 5,500 artifacts from the ill-fated liner's uh, disaster, that everything from pieces of the hull to sets of China. In 2016, that company, RMS Titanic Incorporated, and its owner, Premier Exhibitions, filed for bankruptcy. The artifacts are covered in the shipwreck face and uncertain fate. Now a coalition of British museums is bidding to buy the company with the goal of bringing Titanic home. In a court filing on Friday, UK's National Maritime Museum and National Mu- Museum's North Ireland pledged to raise $19.2 million in the coming months to buy Premier Exhibitions and its Titanic collection. Museum would co-own and conserve the Titanic artifacts, and the Titanic Belfast Museum, built next to Titanic shipyards, would display many of them. Premier's non-Titanic assets would be spun off to exhibit firms running Subway. Premier's creditors support the bid. Running Subway's CEO, James uh, Sana, is on the company's creditors committee. The essence of proposals that we want to secure the artifacts in a public ownership and perpetuity. We want to make them available for people of the world. We want them to honor the memories of the people who lost their lives in an unfortunate tragedy, said Connell Harvey, deputy chairman of Titanic Belfast. We don't want the artifacts to be otherwise exploited by people in a way that we think is inappropriate. If we fail in our attempt to save this collection for posterity, it's a very strong chance the collection will be broken up, adds Kevin Fuster, the director of the National Maritime Museum. If that disaster ever were to happen, it could not be rectified again. The collection will be lost for all time. 
Museums aren't the only bidders. On June 15th, a group of Premier's existing shareholders, including Hong Kong investment firm Packbridge Capital Partners and U.S. Equ- private equity firms Atla Fundamental Advisors and Apollo Global Management, whose assets include Chuck E. Cheese and University of Phoenix, offered a minimum of $17.5 million for the company. Third proposal from the committee representing Premier's equity holders calls for splitting up the artifacts, artifacts and selling some off in an auction. Because of this bankruptcy, human history might go on the auction block and disappear from public domain, said Frederick Hybert, National Geographic Society archaeology and archaeologist in residence. Court may decide among the proposals at a July 25 hearing. And then they go on to talk about some other things related to it. But, uh, I mean, is there a point that they're trying to guilt the courts into saying, hey, we, we should get this? Well, artifacts caught in international tug-of-war. I don't think there is an international tug-of-war. To me, it's economic. No, this is... This this is is what I spent. I'm a company. I went into bankruptcy. It'd be interesting to know why they went into bankruptcy. But they have this material, their assets, and museums want it. If they can't ante up the money, then private enterprise will take over and people will buy it. Yeah, what they needed to do is... uh, Because it's it's in bankruptcy. So there's more owed than what uh, they believe the assets are worth, and they're probably having cash flow problems on top of it. So, I mean, it just comes up as you have to have enough money to get it. Um, and if somebody else is going to offer more. And, th- and I can understand what they're hoping to do <clears throat> because things can go to auction and actually go for much less. So maybe they're trying, their angle is saying, hey, what we're offering to give you, which is, what was it, 19? Uh, it, it makes more yeah, sense as I, start, as I start going down past it, salvaging the past. I didn't realize there was more to the article. The announcement marks the latest twist in the story of the Titanic. Private firm holds salvage rights to the Titanic, which means that it is the only entity allowed to remove articles from the wreck site. And RMST said its goal is to preserve the ship's legacy, and the company has conserved the artifacts it has salvaged. So now it does come into who's got the most money to buy the artifacts. I didn't realize they said they talked about the collection has been seen by more than 25 million people, and there's four exhibits in the U.S. and Canada uh, from their displays, from their exhibits, the four exhibits they have. Yeah, it, it tours around. I remember we've covered it many times in the show, it moving to different locations. So I think they well, brought it, a, yeah. a section of the hull, didn't they? I'm not sure. This other part here, museums and academics, acad- academics, yeah, have criticized RMST for commercially salvaging artifacts in the first place. So my my comment there was, and the option is what? You know, commercially salvaging. So who's going to do it for free? Probably nobody. Right. So, I mean, well, I won't go into that on, on archaeology and, and who should yeah. have what, but it's interesting. So would that be if the museum got it, are they also getting the rights to the uh, salvage? It does not, does not say that, but I would assume that if you bought the company that would be part of the asset is the right of salvage. Mm-hmm. But like they say, in another, what, 50 years, there'll be nothing left. It's deteriorating at a pace that they had not anticipated. It's really beyond their imagination of how quickly it's going to act in handbasket. Well, what might be interesting in this is that it could be the point that there'll be a moment in time where only the stuff that's been brought up and conserved is even in existence. The rest of it will all have uh, rusted away. Right, because if it does that and internally collapses, any of the stuff that was inside is going to be broken up. To get. And again, I'm looking at the boot that they got another picture off here. I mean, if you can document it from that, and it's got some historical you know, pedigree, having something like that is pretty cool. But by the same token, how often we found boots on and near other wrecks or junk or trash piles boots seem to do boots and glass I, and i and i think we've covered in other articles it's the the process of tanning the shoes that have helped them survive yeah this is a really good article when you read all of it well it's down to the part if the museums want it come up with the money yeah because you've got creditors who i think are probably going to be a little upset if a court just says yeah we like you better yeah and then another article talking about protecting shipwrecks. Another in, in, in Indonesia are set up to join to uh, 
to a joint team to protect Second World War shipwrecks that are being plundered on the seabed. Foreign Affairs Minister Steph Block said he agreed with his Indonesian counterpart to set up a team to locate and protect vulnerable wrecks by the end of the year. It follows discovery last year that three Dutch wrecks had disappeared from the bottom of the Java Sea, having apparently been taken by scrap dealers. At least 110 Dutch shipwrecks were sunk during the Pacific Ocean Campaign or are currently lying in Indonesian waters. On a visit to Jakarta, Block said the Indonesian government was aware of cultural significance of shipwreck sites to the Netherlands. The locations of three missing vessels, the SNLMS de Uter, Java, and the Corintiniar, were marked as commemorative sites. The ships were sunk by a Japanese fleet in 1942 with a loss of around 1,100 sailors. Now, they've agreed they're going to protect them, but I'd like to see some. How are they going to go about doing that? Well, remember, we, we covered that a couple of years ago about they, we saw the pictures of the side scans at the bottom of the ships, and then they went back, and it's like Oops. <laughs> it's aliens took them. Yeah. It's amazing how they can come out there. Obviously, they're going to need a clam, clamshell right. device, a big barge, or at least a, a big ship with a moon pool. Uh, it, but I, I can't believe that as deep as some of those were, that it is economically feasible to go down there and rip them apart just for the metal. Yeah, it must be they weren't doing anything else because, <laughs> it's like you said, it seems you know, for for clamshelling it probably isn't, but it's not your everyday equipment that can go down. I mean, you have to get uh, gear that can go and and cut. So a lot of times they have it's like giant shears that they drop down. They're able to section parts of the soft because these aren't your you know a small fishing boat or something. These were large steel vessels. So it took some work to get those up. Now, maybe maybe they had people down there with torches, because these, these, some of these wrecks were uh, dive sites, I thought, weren't they? I believe some of them were, yes. Yeah, some, some but were. But the, the big one we looked at wasn't, though, wasn't it? No, it seemed was, to be a little deep. Yeah, it was a little deeper. Yeah, so we'll see. They've, you know, they've, they've agreed to do it. So. Uh, yeah, the question is, how do they do it? Making a law doesn't mean you won't do it. Yeah. Well, I think part of it may be, to kind of read between the lines, is that there was a lot of... Uh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge going on in Indonesia. And uh, I think, wasn't there a case of where one of the salvage uh, vessels claimed to have paperwork approving it, and they actually did to a certain extent, but it was all kind yeah. of doctored and not uh, genuinely official. So, And then uh, that kind of leads this next one. Maritime Museum of British Columbia celebrates 15 years of, of the massive marine garage sale. There a April 21st, Marine Museum of British Columbia celebrates 15 years of its annual fundraiser, the Massive Marine Garage Sale. The event uh, brings together marine vendors from all over Vancouver Island to sell their used marine-related and outdoor items. An average of 1,000 visitors make their way to the annual event, comb through items under 50 vendors' table inside Pier A Warehouse in Ogden Point, where more vendors setting up larger items outside. The museum also sells a number of donated goods, raise fund for the community and school education programs. This was on April of this year. Kind of wonder how they did with that. Uh, the pictures are quite interesting. Sort of reminds me of uh, the wolves. Yeah. Well, there, there's, a, there's a couple dead eyes, and you wonder how, I mean, are they actually selling some of these dead eyes or those uh, mock-ups? Well, the, uh, no, that's, well, those are blocks. Those are fully blocks. Yeah, blocks. Yeah. And whether or not they came off a ship or not, meaning sunken, yeah. It's not apparent. They don't look that way, looking at the coloration. No, they, they look more weathered. You know, they were, I mean, they're but old, they're but, they're, but they're not. They may, like you said, they may have just been something that was taken a long time ago and not necessarily underwater. That still would have been quite interesting to go to. Yeah. I wish they had a lot more pictures of what was available to them. I clicked on the link, but it just took me to their their general websites. Yeah. And then, I mean, it said 50 vendor tables. Well, even the wolves, they have probably 20. Yeah. And this next series of articles kind of has to be the articles of the week. By the time most people will be listening to podcasts, we'll probably know the outcome of this. But there's been, for the last several weeks, a soccer team that had been missing. And earlier this week, uh, uh, UK scuba divers had actually found the soccer team and their coach uh, alive. So there's 12 boys and a coach. Uh, and they said rescue workers assisted the Thai Navy SEALs uh, and helped them find the boys. Let me see. I've got three or four articles I'm jumping between. 
Did, did you actually watch any of those videos, Mac, of the... Yes, I did. That's it's amazing. Oh. And I, I don't really know how they're going to do it, but I saw them on, on one section where, and it made sense, if you're going to get them out underwater and they're not scuba trained, they were full face masks. I don't know what the depth is, and that's what I'd be very curious is how deep are they pressure-wise, you know, to get them out. Well, from the aspect of being able to clear your ears, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But yeah. if you took one by one, had a real strong line, full face mask, and something to keep them warm, I, I'd be curious to one to know how long does it take a diver to go A to B or B to A, and what is the maximum depth, what's water temperature. Yeah. And on well, a full face, that would be a logical way. Yeah, full face mask would make sense. I, I've heard there were some concerns about the uh, the current, so they're trying to monitor the the current in the cave conditions. There's some talk where they just might wait for the uh, rainy season to end for how many months was it or weeks? It I don't know. I, I saw the pumps that they had were they were trying to pump water out of the area mm-hmm. to help minimize any encroachment of it in the area in which they're at. Yeah, and, and they actually had one group that was pumping water the wrong way. I don't know if you saw that article. Somebody had no. no yeah, there, there's one because they had they have like a, a central coordination, but. Everybody's trying to go and help, and somebody on their own had started pumping water, but where they were putting the water they were pumping was actually pumping it right back into the cave system. So there's been a you know a few glitches in the organization of the uh, the rescue attempt. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting because they said, uh, found the squad said it took three hours to reach them as they tra- uh, faced fast-moving currents and had to pull themselves along cave walls. So to me, that sounds like one, run a freaking cable so you're not on a you know a line or going to the wall. Mm-hmm. And you would almost think they could get a police system or something to get gear in there and out. Well, I, I'm almost wondering, could you make almost like a uh, like a dry sub? I mean, it I would, don't know how we don't know how how wide the openings and stuff are. Yeah, those guys are awful freaking lucky. Yeah. I was surprised because when I saw this article and once it went past six or seven days, I was just thinking that the the likelihood of them finding any of them alive was getting pretty small, especially after that first couple of days when they found some of their gear. Yeah, yeah. So that was just not... I, I cannot imagine though being there for that long, hungry, the the hygiene facilities, you know, using the facilities, mm-hmm. uh, did their lights all burn out because... Once you realize you had to be there, I think they would have husbanded their flashlights. But can you imagine being huddled together for 10 days in the freaking dark, thinking that the water going to rise? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's also the one thing we don't know. Was this, do they have fresh air in there? Was there an air pocket? Or was this just happened to be an air bubble where they're they're actually below, you know, water level? It's actually pressurized to a certain extent? Yeah. A lot of variables, a lot of things we don't know. Yeah, they said rescue teams are now supplying to groups with food, water, medical care as officials decide how the group can be safely rescued. One option is to wait for the floodwaters to recede when the monsoon season ends, but that could take several months. Crews could search for another entry point into the cave from above, or divers can teach the boys and their coach how to scuba dive out. If you look at the scenario, basically everything about it is a challenge. Yeah, because you could use a, a good neck dam. And um, a desco pot, for example, which means their whole head mm-hmm. is contained. And even if they hyperventilated, as long as they've got an airline to them or a system of air, you could get out. That would sound logical, but if the current is what got you know what has me concerned. Well, the current how you also hold on to the kid. How you're going to hold on to the kid, main control, mm-hmm. and then make your way out. Yes, they said that some of the children don't know how to swim. They're they're not even they they don't they don't have swimming ability. Yeah, they said, we train people for weeks and months and sometimes years to go through the experience that these kids are going to go through in order to get them to safety. Yeah, they, they said a typical scuba certification class takes about 50 hours. That includes cat, classroom time, four or five pool sessions, and four open water dives. Well, they're talking about you being able to do your own. The, the, the kids wouldn't need that extent of training because they're not going to be responsible for their dive tables and other uh, safety conditions that's going to be up to the divers who, are, who would be rescuing them. Uh, but you still have to make sure that they're not going to panic. I mean, they need to be able to to at least support you in getting them out. The other aspect I'm thinking of is what you just said. One is that area pressurized to some extent because if they're low, they're in a water pocket. As the water as it went up, 
compress the air to a ton of pressure. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know that. And again, how deep are they? Yeah, it, it wasn't clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through some of these other articles, see if they've got anything. Well, and considering how long it took trained cave divers to get to them, I mean, that's not a light dive. That's not like a little recreational jaunt in there. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I I can almost imagine that the logistics of just getting gear staged up there to be able to do that sort of out. Okay, I just saw something I hadn't read before. Hang on a second. Okay, how can people who don't know how to swim or scuba dive navigate their way out of pitch black, 1.5-mile long cave system filled with strong, rushing water? Now, how long would it take you, trained, to go a mile? Mile and a half current. Oh, mile and a half in a controlled a atmosphere. Wall. So, so you you'd have some. I mean, that's assuming that they've run a cable. You do not want yeah. to do a Superman dive in a cave system where you just glide through. You're gonna. I, I mean, that would be hours, at least. And that's not. I mean, you could start off in a a a, a solid frame of mind and be a complete mess before the end. I mean. Yeah. 1.5 mile, I would want a DPV with tanks on it. Then you could have a, you know, yeah, I, have a sled, have I, the kid on the sled with a full face, you so, know, attached to it so he can't come off, and then, you know, you, get you, that back. You could almost make like a DPV wet sub then, provided they could make it through the passage. So then you could right. have some way of containing the the student. Wow. Well, here we go again. Well, this, narrow, this... narrow passages. So forget the uh, dry sun. Narrow And passages. maybe the DPV even. Yeah. This is going to be a movie before it's all done. Hopefully they can get out of there. But Oh, I bet you you're right. This this may make sense. I mean, they, they may, you know, at first it sounds silly leaving them in there. But if you know that it's eventually going to dry out, you know, I, that, if you're, if you're going to go for the safest option, then just start, you know, Hauling food stuff in and food stuff, a little shelter, some cots, some you know, make it somewhat reasonable. Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense to you know do something just to risk getting them out quicker. But could you imagine if that was like like what is that your kids in there and you knew how to dive? I if I didn't have my cave certification, you bet I'd have it. Yeah, there's it's it's one of those. I'm glad I don't have that responsibility for those people. Yeah. I mean, the other kicker is you don't have to rush to get them out. No, not, now you've got them. So the, the thing like we, we say of diving, if you got air, you got time. Right. So just, and just, the other aspect is unless that part of the cave would flood, you've got time to really plan out what you're going to do and make a good exit strategy. Yeah, there's, there's no sense in rushing. Assuming that there's no medical there's, conditions that you need to get them to a hospital quick. And then again, if you had a, a person who needed it, you could rally around with that, that many divers and provide get the one kid out. Yeah. Yeah. If you had somebody who had uh, you know an infection that was going on or uh, a broken or damaged limb or something, then you could figure out a way. Because it would probably make more sense to, to get somebody out you know, in a three or four hour dive versus trying to bring a medical staff in. Yeah. No, it'll be something. I mean, some of the scenarios is possibly two divers per kid. Boys can clean to the back of one diver while another diver in back helps support them as well. This way the teenager will only need to hold on to the rope and the diver and breathe through the mask. Says the caves are probably not flooded all the way through. So the divers will probably come up for short periods during the process. See, this is the kind of stuff we just don't know. Right. Well, that's the thing, is if there are dry sections, then you could make, like, little staging bases. Right, yeah. Because the other thing is, what's this water temperature? Well, yeah. that was the other factor they talked about here. They didn't give it other than say, even though it's warmer than most places, blah, 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 you got the hypothermia aspect. So warmer than most the... places tells me that that water's probably in the 60s to 70s, which will still get you hypothermic before you know it. Plus, in the cave system... The, the It didn't say, but when we used to go take caving in the old days, the average temperature in our caves was 55. Of course, that was dry. You know, dry 55 is a little different. Mm-hmm. Now, I get a, have you ever been in a cave? 
Not in a type item. No, I mean I've only been in like really minor caves, more tourist traps than anything else. Yeah, it, it's not the same as in the movies. Uh, I got back when I was really young and stupid, meaning we did things and didn't realize what we didn't know. We went into a cave system in Alabama, and you can go up or down, meaning you can go a high cave, which is generally dry, or you can go wet. Well, we we went down, and we had three lights, four of us, duh. Yeah. One first aid kit and a bump cap. Well, we got lost, and then we got lost in a mud cave, meaning the mud was up to our knees, and we didn't realize it that when it had heavy rains in North Carolina and Tennessee, it flooded the cave system that we were in. Oh. Yeah. Fortunately for us, it was a, a cave that people like to go through. And a guy found us, read us the riot act, called us everything in the book, which was all valid, and uh, got our asses out of there. And that's three adults, you know, doing stupid things like that. we're young army dudes. You know, what can happen to you? Well, right. <laughs> we learned real quick what can happen to you. And after that episode, I was stuck to the high dry side caves. But no, I can appreciate what they're going through. That is not a fun experience. I mean, you come out of it, then you can talk about it. Yeah. Got to be scary at that age. Yeah, but the, I mean, they're in the middle of monsoon season, so there's still plenty of water rushing into that cave system. Well, time is going to tell. Well, then this next one was, and I thought you'd appreciate it, is uh, it was uh, drones are taking photos of a U-boat shipwreck in England. A couple days ago, drone enthusiast David 18 took his Unic Hypoon H, not the plus, to the waterfront in River Medway and sort of stumbled upon this almost 100-year-old U-boat while flying his drone. Now, do you think he stumbled upon it or he said he knew in advance that this would be cool to, to look at? If I from this, that has been seen by pilots and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, Google Earth, at least. Yeah, that's well documented. So he knew that it was going to be kind of popular. Uh, so they're saying this is a 100-year-old German U-boat from the First World War that was first spotted around 2013 after a big storm had reshaped the mudflats in the River Medway near Humble Bay Creek of Stokes, Saltings, in England. After the First World War, many Ju- uh, German U-boats were brought up the Thames estuary to be dismantled and repurposed. The diesel engines that powered a submarine, for instance, are believed to have been ended up at a cement factory. The hulls were typically scrapped. According to Telegraph, this particular U-boat was sought to be UB-122, according to team researchers it was captained by. Uh, they said it had surrendered at the end of the war. It had been taken to Britain. It had later been towed the midway to hauling where its diesel engine removed and fitted to a local cement works in 1921 is being taken back down the river towards the Tame Estuary for further dismantlement when it, when its toe broke and was swept ashore, coming to rest at Humble Bee Creek near the island of Grain, where it remains. Uh, back when it was launched in 1918, the UB-122 is the most advanced submarines of its time, since it was Type B-3, coastal patrol submarine who had been outfitted with 10 torpedoes and a crew of 34, during the war, German submarine operated in groups or wolf packs is very effective, almost bringing the UK to its knees in 1917. The, the U-boats were responsible for sinking about 5,000 ships in total. Uh, for most of the century, this particular U-boats in the Marsh of Kent has been resting away in remote parts of the marsh. You can get to it with a canoe, perhaps a hovercraft, but doing so is considered somewhat dangerous. Only on the very low ties the hull get completely exposed. To get a closer look, David did not have to risk anything other than his drone. That was supplied by uh, Unique UK, and by sharing his photos, the story on Drone DJ has provided others a close-up view of the historic vessel. There's that term, historic, again. Yeah, they towed it out, took all the garbage off, lost it, let it go, didn't worry about it because it wasn't worth anything. It's always nice, though, when they put a surface shot of the sub before and after. Those are always... Yeah. That'd still be fun. Oh, yeah, looking at the Google, do you see the Google Map one? Yeah, yeah, you can see it in Google oh. Maps. Yeah, it's not like you suddenly discovered that. No. Oh, I just happened to be out there. I wonder if that has to be a cover story out there, like, you know, there's some, you're not allowed to go look for stuff like this. Okay, hit the small button, make it smaller, and see how close it is to civilization. Oh, on the Google Earth? Yeah, go ahead and click that. It's like, oh, 
Yeah, that wasn't suddenly found. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm slowly. Oh yeah, you're you're exactly right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a, there's a bridge over here. There's a, a looks like a pipeline that goes off to the left of it. Hey, it made a good story though, and it was cool. Yeah. And I'd go check it out if I was out. Yeah. Yeah, this recover story was a little suspect. And then how about this for some potential cool, almost scuba gear? The Supa Hookah Surface Supplied Breathing Apparatus. Uh, so this is, is that like the one we looked at last week? It, With the I don't, snorkel on? Yeah, this, it, this one's a little different. This is a uh, mix between snorkeling and scuba diving, dive to 10 meters deep. At least I don't think it's the same one. Let me head on over to the Kickstarter page. That's what everybody's doing. Is it's almost like there's a a company because this this look when you look at a photo of it it's like luggage all in a case yeah got some solar well that's panels. what they said you could take it with you don't have to lug those heavy scuba tank God this is some of this stuff's scary you look at it I mean do you really want some guy who's trying to just billy bob this together get this going I just wonder how that would work in uh, wave action and are you prepared to do something if it suddenly goes and you're how deep? What thirty feet? Yeah, there's that's what they're saying. You can do thirty in it. Extended periods of time, no training needed. Yeah. There's even a USB charging port. Wow. Oh, that's how you can hook in your uh, your photo cell, so you can charge it when you're out on the on the beach waiting for the next yeah. tide shift. Well, it's an active it's active on Kickstarter. Their goal is thirty eight thousand twenty four dollars. That thirty eight thousand seven hundred seventy two. So they've reached their their goal. So they're going to be funded. They only have fifty three backers so far. Thirty eight days to go. Let's see, looks like this is in Canadian dollars. I'm trying to see what they're actually charging it. The basic bundle discount is seven hundred seventy five dollars. Eh. You know, it's interesting the packaging, but all this at this point in time looks like a very fancy industrial designers mock-up mm-hmm. so basically what you're doing is you're gambling that they're going to be able to come up with this what you get may not look like this hmm. well if you get one let us know how you like it let's see they have a ship date estimated delivery march 2019 where does it say you don't need training let's see thanks uh Packed with features. How do, I was just looking at something here. The picture where it's got the uh, suitcase with all the little items around it, then the dive flag, and then the picture of the suitcase again. Mm-hmm. The idea of surface applied breathing is nothing new. Read the third line down and tell me what the heck that means. The super hookah okay. is much safer than the, what is that word? Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to find it. What's what's the first few words of that? The Richmond Stone said the super hookah is much safer than the okay. artsy sandal fishing ways. I, I didn't understand that one. Oh, do you see the the sentence I'm talking about? No, I'm. I'm... Right, do you see the picture where the guy's got the the, the harness on and this, you can see the hook up in the back? You, like the mannequin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see that one? Yeah. All right. And you see the ones above it, the three pictures? Well, ab- above it is the, uh, like, the suitcase. Uh, so you've got three pictures in a row. Then you got verbiage. Then you have the picture we're talking about with the... Yeah. Okay. It's the first paragraph, because there's two. Third line down. Okay. So safety has always been our number one priority. We've spared no expense of keeping you safe in the water. The vest mounted controller lets you keep your eye on battery life. Audio visual no, alerts. Not, not that. Go up, go up. Go That's up. the second paragraph, first paragraph. Love it. Third line. Third line. Says the constant flow of air to the diver. I don't see that. <laughs> I, I am going up and down the constant. This is great. This is great uh, radio here. The constant. I don't know. I, I, so it says, so keeping it safe at sea, then if I go up, because it doesn't end there, the exterior case is just special. Okay, hang on. We'll just start at the top. Okay. <laughs> on the first page, you got the super hookah surface, right? Yep. And then you have the picture. Yep. And you can see the guy towing it, supposedly. 
All right. Then it says super. Then you go down. You've got three paragraphs. Oh, you're on the actual article. I'm sorry. Where are you at? I was I was actually in the Kickstarter page. I, oh I no, was, I'm uh, I'm in the article we yeah you okay had. okay so that's that's why we were we we're a little oh, okay. bit out of sync there. <laughs> okay, so yeah, okay, super okay. Let me see. So it's a third uh, Kickstarter Seven. floats on the surface. Uh, okay, the super hook is much safer than artisanal fishing ways. What, what the heck does that mean? I think what they're mean is. The guys who were uh, either doing breath holds down or were doing the, uh, or they had the divers. You, you've seen those where they got the comp- they got the old gas compressor that somebody salvaged from a junkyard, and then they have thirty hoses all hanging off the boat for all the yeah young teenagers. Them. Yeah, they but yeah, like the the I think this is a polite way of saying the uh, you know the jury rigged diving. Which, yeah, I, I think this could be a little safer than that. Okay, that's called, I just looked it up. However you pronounce it, it says, or traditional subsistence fishing. Or artisanal, are, yeah. Or various small-scale, low-technology, low-capital fishing practices undertaken by individual fishing households as opposed to commercial companies. I should have looked that up instead of asking. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. No, it's... Uh... Well, I'll be curious to see the feedback when it's out in production. Yep, if you get one. Okay, well, that does it for scuba in the news. Uh, we've had some beautiful weather. We just came over the 4th of July weekend where it was toasty, and maybe the only place where it wasn't too hot was in the water. Do we know of anybody going out and getting any dives in? Uh, quite a few people. Not me, but quite a few people. Uh, I'm trying to remember who's been out. Well, I, I saw Karen had her boat out in the water. I, the, the the dive ladder that, uh, uh, was it Jim Schultz, was it? Was it Jim Schultz, myself, and Bob Sweeney? I think we all helped her on that boat uh, do something. But they uh, the first use of the dive ladder looked like it had uh, the metal plate on it had bent, which that's a, a commercial dive ladder. So I was a little surprised that it broke the way it did. It just tells me it wasn't engineered real well it needed a little bit extra welds or support well i think the people that somebody got on the ann arbor five they yep. got on a barge and there were some nice pictures i think by kevin yeah so it is definitely that dive season i mean we're beyond dive season yeah uh, if you're not in there now you're not going to get wet probably <laughs> yeah on uh what was it july 2nd ann arbor five yeah really nice pictures uh from the bottom at 160 up to the decking, 110. Then they had some experiences with uh, interesting weather beating the storm. And I see Ke- uh, Kevin has been uh, putting programs on about the preserve. Yep. Uh, yeah, he, he was getting out and uh, talking about the preserve and what's going on there. So it was great to see him getting out there. And I know the SAS group, they've been doing some heavy hitting diving. Mm-hmm. And as we were ignoring the chat room, I see Kevin, uh, not Kevin, Karen was in there and she was probably screaming at us going, why do you listen? Uh, they, she's, we were back on the Thai article. It said six hours to get in, five hours to get out, according to the article that she read earlier in the day, uh, which makes like sense. Diver died too. Yeah, that's, sections are so narrow, divers had to remove their gear to squeeze through. Yeah, that's not, you're not, unless you're, you're going to do... Bring- like a side mount situation where the kids don't actually have the, uh, the tanks on them. You just do long hoses, but that, I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm thinking you may want to wait. How did the kids get up there? Or they, did they come in a different route? Of course, I guess well, if you're trying to get away from rising water, you're going to squeeze in places you might not ordinary. Yeah. Around here, if you want to get a cave, not diving cave, cave certs and basic down in Southern Illinois, Kentucky area. There's a couple of places. I tried to get it so the, the dive club could spend the night in the cave and they go diving. Mm-hmm. And the lady, was when I was talking to her about, yeah, we're going to come, we'll spend the night, we'll dive. And she says, but it's dark in there. And it's like, okay. <laughs> you, then you take a light with you. It's already dark in a cave. Right. <laughs> but they took you on. You go through three cave systems, and you advance from really simple to more complex 
and the third one is a wet cave. So when you come, you have to bring extra clothing because you're going to be really messy when you get out. Yeah. And it gives you some experience with that of getting, you know, having to crawl on your belly to some little nooks and crannies type item. So it gives you an appreciation. And it sounds like once you do that, you don't want to do this underwater. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know I can fit through. I don't want it to be like you get kind of halfway through and they go, uh, yeah, we may not be able to get you out. Yeah, I'm not going to be in the part where I'm going to be pushing my tanks through and then me following. No. If I want to get back out in a hurry, that doesn't really make me feel warm and fuzzy. Oh. Well, we do have a Google story tonight, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a safety story? Say again? You have a story, you said? Uh, Yes, I do. Go for it. Okay. We're talking safety anyway. Okay. This one is titled, Swept Away. Separation from a photography buddy gets a scuba diver into real trouble. Was that me or you? <laughs> That's people uh, trying to get a hold of us. That's uh, why we're ignoring the chat room. Uh, uh, Angie slowed her breathing while she hovered just above the reef. She attempted to make herself invisible in the water so the tiny blimey fish would reappear. She really wanted a close-up of it coming out of its hole. Finally, Angie was rewarded with the perfect shot. She took three frames before the blinny disappeared back inside. Startled by the flash from Angie's underwater strobes. Moving away from the reef, Angie looked around for her dive buddy, Cliff, the diver. Cliff and Angie had been scuba diving together for years. They had a routine. Angie was an avid underwater photographer, but Cliff liked to hang out in the water and enjoy the scenery. He had a sixth sense for finding small critters in the reef, so he often searched for Angie's next subject while she worked with the camera. Cliff never moved too far from Angie. Neither one of them liked to be in be a bad dive buddy. They made a good team, supporting each other in the water. They were both in their 40s and in good health. When the morning of the dive, Cliff wasn't feeling 100%, but he wasn't about to let that get in the way of making the dive. They hadn't a ch- had a chance to dive for in a while, and, the, and he did not want to disappoint Angie. He'd skip breakfast, hoping his stomach would settle down. The dive. Conditions were nearly perfect for the planned dive from a small charter boat. The charter specialized in small groups, no more than six divers at a time. And that's exactly the way Angie and Cliff look. Minimize the chances of another scuba diver disturbing Angie's photos or damaging her camera. The divers promised the rule of 80s. 80 degree air, 80 degree water, 80 foot of visibility. There's a strong current on the bottom moving diagonally across the site, but Cliff and Angie agreed there would be, they would hide between the coral formations, stay near the boat. Angie was after small critter photos. Sending up her camera for macro so there'd be no need to swim away from the reef, they asked. After watching Angie set up her shot and move into position to photograph the, the fish, Cliff decided to explore the reef and look for Angie's next step. He knew she was hoping to get a photo of a clownfish or an enemy for her portfolio. Swimming from one coral formation to the next, Cliff moved out from behind the protection of the reef, exposing himself to the strong current. He swam against the current so he wouldn't be carried away from the dive site, working hard and moved to the next outcropping. Cliff was nearly to the next coral formation when he got a cramp in his left leg. When he turned to stretch it out, the current caught him and pulled him away from the reef and out towards the sand. Realizing what was happening, he struggled to stretch his calf and swim at the same time. Neither worked very well, and he floated further away from Angie in the original dive site. Angie finished taking her photos and looked up and around to find Cliff, just in time to see him struggling as he floated away. Clipped off her camera to a BC and swam towards him. Cliff was attempting to self-rescue and swim with his hands. Angie realized what he needed, grabbed his fin while supporting his ankle. Stretching out his leg, she signaled him that he needed to relax and just float. In a few moments, Cramp was relieved and Cliff could swim again. Looking around, the scuba divers realized they had floated too far away from the dive site to make it back. They agreed to surface swimming in the direction of the boat while they did. On the surface, Cliff deployed his safety marker buoy, signaled to the boat crew they were both okay. Crew kept an eye on the dive buddies while they recovered the remaining divers. Excuse me. Then removed, then moved to pick up Angie and Cliff and Alice. Often underwater photographers get so absorbed in what they're doing, their dive buddies feel as if they're diving alone. In Cliff and Angie's case, they had an understanding about their respective roles. Despite that, Cliff really didn't have a buddy on that dive. No one was keeping an eye out for him or ready to help him out in an emergency. A small issue such as a leg cramp 
quickly escalate into a larger problem. We've discussed many times in this column how a small trigger can lead to panic and a serious accident. When a diver is uncomfortable or unprepared for a dive, all it takes is a small incident for the perceptional narrowing comes with panic to set off a chain reaction. In Cliff's case, he wasn't feeling well. He was mildly dehydrated on the morning of the dive. He hadn't been scuba diving in a while. He wasn't used to wearing fins. These factors likely led to his leg cramp. He began the process of self-rescue and was under control but floating away from Angie. Cliff was smart and swam into the current when he moved away from Angie initially, ensuring he would be able to make it back to her, but he hadn't planned on the cramp. This dive incident is relatively minor and not uncommon. Slight complications, such as an accidental mass flood or cramp, can happen every day in the water. It's always the diver's response to the problem that determines is it a, if it is a quickly forgotten minor inconvenience or potential disaster. In Cliff's case, had Andy not seen him floating away and responded to give him aid, and had he not remained calm, he could have easily have panicked, bolted to the surface, and in a panic situation, it's easy to forget your training and neglect to ex- exhale on the sun. So lessons for life, have a plan to support your buddy. Even if you have a task on a dive, don't forget about your buddy. Alternately, your buddy should seek training in solo diving and be prepared to be completely self-sufficient. Number two, practice self-rescue skills. Too often divers learn skills in the open water, but never practice them again. During your next safety stop, remove or replace your mask. Practice relieving a cramp. It'll serve you well. Three, practice buddy rescue skills. See above, but the next time, practice air sharing drills. Number four, don't dive if you aren't prepared. No diver wants to disappoint a dive buddy by backing out, but don't dive if you're not mentally and physically prepared for it. Better to miss a dive than to not come back from one. And last, don't forget to breathe. Always maintain an open airway on an ascent. Which is nice. This one here had a a nice ending and a story. Yeah. Well, that's one that I feel like that could easily happen to me because I'm known for getting leg cramps. So I could see that. But there's a couple assumptions that they made in there. Uh, One was that he was going to panic. He's a potential for panic. Right. But, I mean, mean, she saw that he was struggling and realized, and I'm guessing that he probably had a history of leg cramps as well. Or he was doing the universal leg cramp thing, which is yelling, oh, shit, as you try and grab your fin. Uh, But, yeah, it was good that it turned out well. Well... After having read the other ones we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the panic seemed to be the big one and not being prepared, you know. Didn't well, have two tanks for some of the dives, penetrations without a line, not trained. Going too deep. Yep. Yeah, preparation, not panicking. I mean, those are those are key. That's a common thread from many of these articles. Well, that's my contribution for the. <laughs> Let's see, anything you want to plug? Oh, no, not really. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like, like to thank everybody who's been supporting the co- the podcast. If you'd like to give us a hand and, and keep us on the air, it's really important that we get your support. So you can head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon link. That Patreon, $3 or more, gets you early access to the show notes. Uh, but any amount can help. And if you can't do it, we understand. But it, it certainly needed to keep us going. As we hit, what was this, episode 374. So there's a good, that's nearly 500 hours of, of original content that we have created over the years to keep you entertained. So if you go on your next dive, dive trip, you can bring us along, download some episodes, and we look forward to spending some time with you. And don't forget that if you're listening to this right now, you had a lot of dead air. <laughs> yeah. When, when, when you edit it, it makes it a lot more convenient and, and together. Yeah, have you have you gone through and listened to the any of the final versions? Yeah, totally different. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> you don't have the chat room. The chat room fills up that that space. But I do. Uh, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. But I do run it through a a, a silence remover. So, uh, and that was that's a hard thing. You know, kind of a podcasting tip is you want to do social ums us ers. But if if I just don't say anything, it actually sounds better because it, it it's almost like we're professionals when you go and you hear it. You're like, wow, we didn't we didn't sound too bad, other than listening to my own darn voice, which I can't stand. Uh, and it's it is awkward because we can't see each other and we can talk over because I don't 
I don't yeah. see you. I don't see your lips start to move. Yes. And some, therefore, we both butt heads a little bit. Someday we'll have some decent internet connection. We can do video or something. That's because that's what all the cool kids are doing now is the video. But uh, as as it struggles as it is, we wouldn't be able to do that currently. Let's see. And if Kevin was here, he'd be telling you that you need to support your librarians. So don't forget the librarians in your local dive shops. I mean, if you're not supporting them during dive season, when are you going to support them? And I think that is about it. We're, we're to that time of the show. Got a good one? No. <laughs> Let me see if I, I've you got it up. I've got it on my phone. I couldn't where it is this week. It was too bad for the computer. Oh my gosh. I don't think my eyesight's good enough for this. I have to take off my glasses. That That's an old man sign, isn't it? So yeah, here's the joke. This is, this one is kind of in spirit of, uh, uh, we just had the 4th of July in the United States, which I guess every place had the 4th of July. It was just our uh, Independence Day here. Uh, and then they have uh, Father William, the old priest, made a practice of visiting the parish school one day a week. He walked in the fourth grade class where the children were studying the states and asked them how many states they could name. They came up with about 40 names. Father William joked and told them that on his day, students knew the names of all the states. One lad raised his hand and said, yes, sir. But in those days, there were only 13 states. I don't think that's something you'd say if you're hoping for a good grade. Not more than once. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do we need? Uh, we got an international audience. They can they can Google it if they want to know what that means. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.